0: So, we've been considering over these last few weeks the preparation necessary to be in a position where we can receive a fresh impartation, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we should continuously be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we should return to Him again and again to receive. A fresh impartation. And when we look at Scripture, we notice that the Spirit and the Word of God are inextricably connected. From the very beginning, we see the Spirit brooding over the waters, right there in the first few verses of Genesis. The Spirit is brooding, hovering over the waters. And then God speaks. And he says, let there be light. The Spirit and the Word of God are always connected throughout the Old Testament. The Spirit often symbolized by the cloud or the smoke that is upon the tabernacle or the temple. And it's there that God speaks his Word to his people. And then in the New Testament... As Gabriel comes to declare the good news that the Son of God is to be born in human flesh here on earth, that word is accompanied by the declaration to Mary that she will be overshadowed, similar to that word at the beginning of creation. She'll be overshadowed by the Spirit of the living God. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, is standing in the waters of baptism, having been baptized by John the Baptist. And as he stands there, the voice from heaven declares, this is my son, whom I love, with him I'm very pleased. And the Spirit of the Lord comes through the riven sky and descends upon Jesus in bodily form as a dove. And stays upon him. And John tells us, stays upon him without measure. And then we see Jesus, full of the Spirit, taken into the wilderness. There to be tested and to be tried and to be tempted by the devil. And Luke tells us, we studied this together just some months ago. Luke tells us that Jesus comes out of the wilderness, not just full of the Spirit, But now, he is full of the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Something has happened in the wilderness. The filling has become an empowering. Jesus goes to his hometown and there declares what it is that's happened. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 61. The The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To do what? To proclaim the living good news. And not only to do the proclamation of the good news, but the demonstration also. To open blind eyes. To set prisoners at liberty. To cause those who are crippled to leap like gazelles to declare the year of the Lord's favor. And so the Spirit and the Word of God are inextricably connected. And we see this throughout the ministry of Jesus. And then we see Jesus preparing his disciples for them to take on the call. To represent him, to to continue the ministry in the world. And he says, You will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in all of Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. But first, wait in Jerusalem to be clothed with power from on high the power of the Spirit, the Word of God are inextricably connected. If we wonder why it is that the Word of God seems to be not so effective in our generation, it's not because the Word has lost its power. It's not because the Word has lost its capacity. It's not because the Word has lost anything of its character. It's because those who bear the Word are not empowered to deliver it. In the upper room, on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, he appears to his disciples, and in John 20 verse 19, he says this, as he breathes upon his disciples, he breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit earlier on in John's gospel. He says, the spirit, the counselor, the, the paraclete in Greek, you remember we talked about it, the one who comes alongside, the, the one who, who is our pacemaker, our mentor, our advocate, our friend. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is with you and will be in you. And clearly, From the way that he demonstrates and the way that he speaks, he's intending the disciples to recognize that in that moment, the Spirit that is being breathed out by Jesus is being breathed in by them and the Spirit has taken up residence, but still they're not ready. The presence of the Holy Spirit is not enough. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that the disciples need. And so, in these next few weeks, we'll look at the day of Pentecost and what it is that happened to the first disciples and recognize that this is a definitive moment for the church and then we'll see how Peter proclaimed the gospel on the day of Pentecost and we'll see that that is a definitive statement of the good news of how to declare and live that good news. But for today, I think it would be good for us to read this passage again and ask ourselves this question. What are the obstacles that need to be overcome for us to receive the power of the Spirit? What are the obstacles? Because there's something very interesting about the passage that... Aaron so ably read and expounded to us earlier. There's something very interesting about this passage that caught my attention this week and caused me to ask this question. What happened to those guys that made it possible for them to be ready for the power of the Spirit? Read with me from Acts chapter 1 and verse 12. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they had been staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus And with his brothers. And with his brothers. Now we've spoken at length about Mary and the women being there at the the day of resurrection. Being the ones who were prepared and ready because they had disciplined their hearts and minds to be the ones who would go and serve Jesus in his death. They were the ones who gathered at the cross. They were the ones who gathered at the grave. They were the first ones to hear from the angels that Jesus was alive. And so it's not surprising that the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are there praying, making themselves ready for the day of Pentecost. It's not surprising that they, along with the disciples and 120 others, we're told later on in this chapter, 120 others on the day of Pentecost are propelled onto the streets of Jerusalem to declare the living good news. It's not surprising that they're there. But I tell you what, I'm shocked that the brothers of Jesus are there. They started out okay. John chapter 2 tells us that They accompanied Jesus to Capernaum. He began his ministry. But John and the other gospel writers make it very clear that the family of Jesus, with the exception of Mary, who clearly heard the challenging words of Jesus and allowed them to change her so that she was there at the cross and there at the empty grave... It's quite clear that the rest of the family, the brothers of Jesus, did not accompany Jesus in his ministry and did not believe in him. Now we'll look at this in detail in a moment. But clearly, something has happened to the brothers for them to be there in the upper room waiting for the power of the Spirit. So what's happened to them? And what are the obstacles that have had to be overcome and how have those obstacles been overcome and what's the net effect of those obstacles being removed in their lives? So let's delve deeply into this subject today. Let's look at what it is that we see in relation between Jesus and his family? Well, I mentioned it earlier, and you need to kind of follow me. It's going to be a bit of a rabbit run through the New Testament, but you'll you'll keep up. If you've got your Bible there, either a digital form of it or the real old-fashioned paper form. If you go to Luke chapter 4, you'll see there Right after verse 14, when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, you'll see there that Jesus goes to Nazareth. Now John, in his prologue to the gospel in John chapter 1, tells us that that Jesus came to that which was his own, and they rejected him. Here in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, we see Jesus declaring that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, so that he can declare the good news. And we see Jesus go on to say, well, some of you may be saying, physician, heal yourself, as we've heard you do in Capernaum. You see, the brothers had been with Jesus in Capernaum, and they'd seen some of the miracles that he'd done, and no doubt had returned to Nazareth and told the town what it was that Jesus was doing. But the report came without faith, and the report came without a commitment to following Jesus. And Jesus said this, a prophet is not received or welcomed in his hometown. And the people maybe thought at this point, okay, you know, that's, that's fair enough, that's a, that's a fair challenge. But then you see he upped the ante. And he addressed their cultural norms. You see, one of the the basic cultural norms of Judaism at the time of Jesus was that people of the Jewish faith were by their heritage and their history closer to God than other people. In fact, they were more favored by God, they were more blessed by God, they were more special to God, and the Gentile world was lost and broken and irredeemable. Maybe the occasional Gentile might become a Jewish person, go through all of the rituals of a fresh identity, but in general. The way that God would bring about his rule on the earth was through his historic people. And they would be the ones who were in charge. And Jesus said this. He said, I'm not, of course, accepted in my hometown like many prophets before me. Elijah, the prophet, had to go to Zarephath outside of Israel. And there was taken care of by a widow. There were many widows in Israel during the famine. But Elijah went to the widow of Zarephath. A Gentile. A lost sinner. Was the one to whom Elijah went. And in the time of Elisha, The immediate disciple of Elijah. In the time of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel. But God healed the Syrian, Naaman. Syrians were the worst of the worst. Syrians were the people who, under Antiochus Epiphanes, had come to Jerusalem and slaughtered pigs in the temple just to desecrate the place. These were evil people. And Jesus says, the good news is for the Syrians. The good news is for the Gentiles. The good news is not just for you. And they grabbed him. And they drove him out of the synagogue and they took him to the edge of the town, to a cliff, ready to throw him off. Now, there's no mention of the brothers getting around Jesus and holding off the people. There's no mention of the brothers interceding on his behalf to try to stop the crowd from doing it. In fact... It's quite clear that because it was not Jesus' time, they were not able to do the thing that they had in their heart to do. And so Jesus walked among them and away from them and left the town never to return to it as his home. He moved to Capernaum and made his home there. So what is it that the brothers had to overcome? What was the first obstacle Cultural norms. What are the cultural norms that are the most familiar thing in your life that, that perhaps you're not even aware of? That cause you to have a prejudicial view of other people. And because they, they, you have a prejudicial view of another person because of their background, their politics, their creed or their color... You are saying by your life that the good news is for you, but not for others. Did Democrats get saved? Is the good news for abortionists? Is the good news for a shaman who, along with others, Violently assaulted the seat of democracy in this nation? Is the good news for that kind of person? Surely not. Where are the cultural norms that prevent you from seeing that the good news might be for people that Jesus may well be sending you to in the power? of the Spirit. So, the first obstacles that the brothers had to deal with were, were cultural norms. The second, the second is the behavior of Jesus. In in Mark chapter 3, look with me to Mark chapter 3. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's left Nazareth. He's, he's not going to go back. He's in Capernaum, and he's with his disciples, he's living in the home of Simon Peter and Andrew, and um, there's lots and lots of people there. So if you look at, um, at Mark chapter 3 verse 20, it says this, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Now, this means that revival has taken place in Capernaum. Whenever you see the the Spirit of God working and the kingdom of God moving in the lives of people, it changes the boundaries of everybody's expectation and schedules get thrown out of the window and calendars get, get put on one side because God is doing something and it's up to him as to what it is that we do. They don't even have time to eat. Things are happening... That are extraordinary. There are people being healed. There are people being delivered of demons. The demons, the one just earlier on in, in, in Mark, the demons turn up in church. During a synagogue meeting, there's a demon saying, We know who you are, Jesus. It's kind of fun when that stuff happens. It's happened to me several times. Verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, in the 21st century, the statement, I mean, most people wouldn't make that statement now because it's obviously politically incorrect to use it, but if somebody said of another person, they're out of their mind, it would normally be either an ironic statement or a therapeutic statement that the person needed some kind of therapy. In the time of Jesus, when someone was declared to be out of their mind, what everybody understood was being said was that the person who was out of their mind was under the influence of an evil spirit. How about that? That's what it meant. So the brothers are in Nazareth. They hear what Jesus is up to. And it doesn't sound too good. Now, if you read on, it says, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. So... There's a connection between what the family have said and what the teachers of the law in Jerusalem are saying because there's a connection with the use of the word and. It's suggesting that both of them are agreeing on a particular topic that relates to Jesus. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. It's as though the teachers of Jerusalem said, we hear what you're saying, brothers of Jesus, But I see your demon, and I raise you Beelzebub. Yeah? It's not just a demon. It's Beelzebub that's that's empowering Jesus. So Jesus then goes into a discourse, explaining how a house divided cannot stand, and then says this, If you make what the Holy Spirit is doing to be evil, It is an unforgivable sin. You put yourself in a position that is beyond a place where you can hear the word of God and receive redeeming grace. Because everything you look at now will be inverted and all of the good things that God wants to do are now seen from your perspective to be evil. And so you can't receive forgiveness Now, that's a shot across the bow. The brothers and Mary are outside. And they say, send a message in because they can't get in. There's too many people. It says in verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus would not conform to behavioral standards that everyone else expected. So, cultural norms were the first obstacle Behavioral conformity was the second. Will Jesus conform to the behavior that we expect people to have when they're religious people? It's an interesting one, isn't it, this? I I can remember I'm I'm a young clergyman, I'm 25 years old, I'm living in Cambridge, England, I'm working in a parish there. And God begins to convict me about worship. Now, you know, I'm a proper evangelical. I've been trained in all the best academies of British evangelicalism that have given us all the great names that everybody's heard of. Jim Packer, John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, all of these people. These were the doyens of my faith and I'm sent out into the mission field of England, which is rapidly descending into spiritual chaos, and I can see that there is literally no way that anything I can say can halt the flow, can turn the tide. I know that I need more power. I've got a lot of word, but I ain't got a lot of spirit. And the first thing that God does to get me to a point of being open to the power of the Spirit so that I have a fresh impartation to be able to do the work that eventually would produce the largest church in the United Kingdom with thousands of people being brought and ushered into God's mercy was behavioral conformity. I would stand in church singing the great evangelical hymns and God would whisper in my ear, is worship just something that you do with your mouth or your body? Well, Lord, I've read the Psalms and some of those people seem to be a little bit unchurch of England. Little by little, I realized that this body of mine that God had created was an instrument of worship. You might find it strange, you know, that I'm at the front here with my arms in the air and a child in my arms and, you know, just enjoying the presence of the Lord and worshiping away like that. You might think that that's what I've always done. But you see, I'm an Englishman. I was born with a stiff upper lip. And I was taught that non-conformity in behavior was just about the worst sin that you could commit. And as the Lord began to break me, and I'll be honest with you, it sounds stupid when I say it now, but this is what I did. I said, okay, Lord, this is what I'll do. I'll have a deal with you. I'll pretend that I've got two sets of arms. One that everybody can see, and another one that just you and I can see. And with the one that everyone else can see, I'll hold on to my hymn book like grim death. And with the arms that I can see and that you can see, I'll raise them before your throne of grace. Well, little by little, the real arm began to join the imaginary arm. Eventually, I had, to put my, I had to put my hymn book down. Imagine, an Anglican in the Church of England, I put the book down. But it was the beginning. It was the obstacle that had to be overcome. The cultural norm, the behavioral conformity. What is it that you have been trained to conform to that is an obstacle to the power of the Spirit? And you say, well, I don't have obstacles. Well, my question to you then is, where is the power? If there are no obstacles, where's the power? And you might be clever enough to come back with a theological statement saying, well, it's up to God, the power. Yeah, it is. This is what Jesus said. Which of you fathers whose son asks for bread gives a stone? If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, will not your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? So my statement to you, my dear friends... And I don't want anybody to feel particularly uncomfortable. Not by me at any rate. If God's making you uncomfortable, great. But if you're not seeing the power of the Spirit to do the things that Jesus and the first disciples did, there must be obstacles. And the obstacles must be similar to the obstacles that the first disciples faced because human beings haven't changed a lot. And here we have some examples of people who are disciples on the day of Pentecost who did not follow Jesus through his earthly ministry and who are ready to receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost so that they're empowered to do the work of the gospel. The work of declaring the good news. The work of of demonstrating the good news. So cultural norms, behavioral conformity. And lastly, in John chapter 7, look with me. John chapter 7, the brothers are mentioned. Jesus recognizes that people are out to get him. They're waiting for him in Judea. And in Jerusalem, they're they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. And so he decides to delay his visit to Jerusalem because he would normally go to Jerusalem during the festivals. And the festival of the tabernacles is coming up. And his brothers come to him. And John says, because they didn't believe in him, his brothers come to him and say, nobody. Nobody. Who wants to be a public figure hides away. You should be in Jerusalem, Jesus. And John says, it was because they did not believe in him. What's the third obstacle? Cultural norms that cause us to have blinkers and blinders and and, and narrow and tunnel vision that prevent us from seeing where the gospel might reach and to whom it might might be extended. Conforming to behavior that that is restricted and and bound up so that the spirit is not able to get past the the behaviors in which you've been trained. Finally, finally, The religious expectations to which you are called to perform. Norm, conform, perform. Norm, cultural norm. Conform, behavior to which you're expected to conform. And then perform, performance. Religious performance. No one who's going to be a public figure. What kind of public figure are they referring to? They're referring to a public figure operating amongst the people of God. You can't be a a rabbi. You can't be a teacher of God's word. You can't be a, a person that God is using amongst God's people unless you perform in a particular way. Which of these obstacles is the obstacle that God wants to remove in you? Is it one obstacle? Is it two? Is it three? Are there cultural norms to which you cleave? Is there certain kind of behavior that you think is the appropriate behavior to which we must conform? I'm not talking about wickedness or goodness here. I'm just talking about Just the behavior of a person who is touched by and filled by the spirit it's really interesting i was i was in a a meeting uh, in arkansas some years ago with another southern baptist pastor i my credentials uh, in those days were with the southern baptists also and uh, the pastor was trying to reach out across the color divide in Little Rock, Arkansas. But it was quite clear that he really struggled with the way in which his black brothers and sisters were worshipping. And he leaned across to me and said, this is probably why it's going to be difficult as my black brothers and sisters celebrated in ways that were full of joy and full of full of a sense of god's presence and power but it was so unwhite is it religious performance did your parents tell you that you have to do certain things to please God? Did your pastor or your priest explain to you that God was largely displeased with you and didn't like you very much? And so you're supposed to do certain things to get his approval? Did you kind of pick that up as you grew up in your religious household? These were the kinds of obstacles that the brothers of Jesus had to overcome. So how did they overcome them? How was it possible that people who wanted to reject Jesus, who suggested that Jesus had an evil spirit, who wanted Jesus to risk his life to go into the lion's den simply because he needed to live up to their religious expectations how did those men how did those men become the people who would declare the good news on the streets of Jerusalem on the day of pentecost the obstacles must have been removed paul tells us in 1 corinthians chapter 15 verse 7 He says, and last, he revealed himself to James, his brother. Jesus had revealed himself to the 12 disciples, 11 by then, to the first disciples. He revealed himself to 500 others. By this stage, the brothers of Jesus must have heard rumor because their mother was already a witness of the resurrected Jesus. And they must have been pining away and sitting there wondering why they'd been left behind. Well, they have been left behind because there are so many obstacles to them receiving what it is that Jesus wants to give them. I wonder what the content of the conversation was between James and Jesus when Jesus, the resurrected Lord, came and said, Hey Jim, how you doing? Now the memory of the church going way back through the centuries to the very foundation of the church's history tells us that James had a nickname. He was called James Camel Knees. James Camel Knees. Because... From the day of resurrection onwards, he was so humbled that he spent the majority of his days on his knees praying. So much so that his knees became calloused and hardened. His body actually was physically deformed because he was so broken. So humbled. If you go to the letter of James, probably the first document of the New Testament, James simply calls himself the servant of Jesus, the Messiah. If you go to Jude's letter, one of the brothers of Jesus, he says, I'm the servant of Jesus and the brother of James. They're not prepared to claim any familial connection to Jesus. They're so broken by their refusal to follow. But thank God, the obstacles came down. When we recognize That Jesus is alive and he's here for us. Everything changes. Jesus would have died just for you. Would have risen just for you. And is here right now. And it doesn't matter if there's anybody else in the room or online. He's here. And by the mystery of his sovereignty... He is wholly focused on you. The resurrected Lord is here. And he wants to know. Do you receive him in all his resurrected glory? And are you ready to receive the power of the Spirit? To declare his name First, in your Jerusalem, and then in your Judea, and then in your Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Are you you ready to receive the power that He is ready to give that you and I be witnesses to the good news that He's brought to us? The world is desperate. If you don't know that, you must be living under a rock. The world is desperate. Desperate people need dependent Christians. A desperate world needs dependent Christians. Christians who... Say to the Lord, Lord, I I know I have these obstacles inside of me. Please take them down and make me the one who you can use to reach the lost and the broken and the foolish and the scandalously wicked. Use me, Lord. now with social distancing in place some of you may feel challenged by this but others not so with the necessary things being put in place if you need to move right now and come and stand in a place near to the front of this gathering room simply to say I'm gonna set aside cultural norms. I'm gonna set aside behavioral conformity that prevents me from doing foolish things that other denominations do. I'm not gonna be controlled by religious performance any longer. I'm going to come and I'm gonna say to Jesus, I'm ready to receive. Then you come, find a space, distant from other people, you come. If the band would join me up here, that would be good. That may be that the front gets too full for you. So maybe you just need to move out into the aisle. Or maybe there's a space at the back of the gathering room. Just find a space. Find a way for you to declare that this is your commitment and intention. This sweet little girl with the lights on her shoes, I love her. I love your shoes. You're welcome. Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Take me beyond my cultural norms the behavioral conformity, the religious performance, Lord. Take down the obstacles. Make me ready. Melt us, Lord. Form us anew. And fill us for service, we pray.